0: okay welcome everyone to our second panel discussion on advocacy and today's topic is how we can best network and work with our local veterinarians Um, something that i think we would all agree is very very important and something that uh with what's going on in the veterinary community today may be a little bit more difficult because COVID's affecting them just like it is us. And so I know I, I just, I, I kind of start out with how I've always traditionally worked with veterinarians but that is to uh, talk to them on a regular basis. In my community that covers a relatively large number of vets and uh, to keep them in the, in the loop on what we're doing and them doing the same. And it's been more difficult since COVID started because they are constrained uh, with uh, just uh, having enough hours in the day to get the job done they're uh, doing. But which one of our panelists is, would like to start off and tell us what you can recommend about working with your local veterinary community? don't all rush in at once
1: let me me do this let me let me just do a quick introduction of the panel so the panel today is don hansen holden eduardo fernandez julie luther beth edelman christy benson and sam wick so welcome everybody thank you so who's going to talk first come on holden always has great stuff to say about working with people so I, I, I kind of want to clarify
2: the theme and the question, is this a sort of professional to professional relationship, or are we talking about how to best coach clients to work with their individual veterinarians? Can, can you help clarify that a little bit for me? Well, we're
0: really looking today at how we as one set of pet care professionals and work with veterinarians and their staff and other set of pet care professionals, all working towards the same same goal, but serving clients in different areas.
2: Gotcha. Okay, so um, I think the, the, you know, it really starts kind of with your own veterinarian. I mean, we all are pet professionals, of course, but we all have our personal pets. So I think, um, you know, starting from a place of, I think, great respect for the veterinary profession, how much education goes into becoming a DVM, and understanding that they also have a very, very finite amount of time. Um, so anytime that, you know, I'm working out with either my own veterinarian or sending a client for a medical evaluation, um, one of the things I think about is how can I make this as succinct as possible? Um, while, of course, getting across the information that needs to be gotten across. Um, but again, I really want to show just my utmost respect for our veterinary Absolutely. professionals and how, wow. how difficult of a position they're in um, so much of the time. And I think one of the ways we can do that is by being conscious of, of their time, really. Good
0: Absolutely. points. Beth, I want to pick on you next since you're representing the cat contingent here. Um, how do you work with vets and suggest our members work with their vets? Yeah,
3: this is something we actually talk about in the cat community a lot. And that's because when cats go to the vet, they typically um, sit on the table. And they sit on the table in that loaf position, you know, the hands all tucked in. And that, that's kind of a shutdown, emotional shutdown position. Or else they're uh, kind of fractious and then they need to be um, wrapped up in a towel, burritoed or something like that. And so vets typically don't see cats walking around their office the way they might see a dog walking in the office or walking towards the office or something like that. And so um, a lot of uh, body language that has to do with pain or other kinds of issues um, is not visible to the veterinarian, but uh, to a behavior consultant who's working with the cat, who's often seeing the cat in their own home, these things will be more visible. And so we talk a lot about how do you say to the veterinarian, I saw the cat walking and limping, or I saw the cat jumping and being ginger. And I get it that you didn't see that and it's not your fault <laughs> because I'm pretty sure the cat didn't move when it when he or she was in your office. So we, we talk a lot about how do we um, communicate those things to the veterinarian because with cats, behavior consultants often see a lot more behaviors and a lot larger range of behavior than a veterinarian would see. And so again, we talk about uh, communicating that well, we always talk about communicating it in writing, making sure that it's in writing, and communicating it in a very succinct and direct way in bullet points. I saw X, I saw X, I saw X. So there's no judgment. It's like it's like a medical report. You know, this is what I saw. 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 And then you're not also you're being careful not to make a diagnosis. I saw the cat limping. He must have arthritis. You know, it's very important, I think, to leave the diagnosis to the vet. I saw the cat limping in his left hind leg. It, you know, is sort of what vets want to hear um, and that's useful. Um, but but any, making any diagnosis or assumption or presumptive diagnosis um, is not received
1: well. Of course not, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I th- for me, I think I always was very successful working with veterinarians and I think it was Um, A, because I didn't expect them to do anything for me. I think too often we go into a veterinary clinic and expect them just to display all our wares without even having a credible relationship. Um, And two, I was very specific about who I referred to and didn't just refer to everybody. So that way you build up a really nice professional relationship with a veterinarian. And I just want to add here because people might not realize that PPG actually has a really nice veterinarian pack in the member area of the website that includes verbiage and flyers and handouts that you can use to sort of start making connections with vets. And they're all things that have been written by other veterinarians. So they're the right types of language. So I think that's always worth looking at. Um, And I think as well, and I hate to say this, but I don't think we always put our best foot forward when we try and network with other professionals. And I owned a veterinary clinic for a few years, was fortunate enough to own one and it had two full time vets in it. And they do have a very um, strange view of dog trainers and pet care providers because many of us don't come across very professionally, which then makes it more difficult for those that do to actually get through the front door. So I think just being careful about how we dress and how we make appointments and what we expect from them certainly helps because if we don't develop credibility, why would they even want to have a professional based relationship with us?
0: So what are the, Nikki, what were some of those things that you saw that vets had, let's say, less than positive attitudes for mm-hmm. trainers? What, what were those things that were of concern to those okay.
1: vets? Well, and it's, and it's funny you say that because when we first bought the veterinary clinic, the people we purchased it from stayed on board as the veterinarians. And they didn't know that we were in the pet business. They thought we were just business people. And when um, Dr. Jennifer found out that I was actually a dog trainer, uh, her demeanour somewhat changed, and I was like, "Okay." So we had we had a really honest conversation about it. And um, I think that I think the most criminal offence that we can commit is giving our clients advice regarding anything from nutrition to veterinary medication, and our client then goes into the vet and says, oh, my dog trainer says I should ask for Apoquel," and th- and immediately the vet's like, "Well, hang on a minute. What the heck do they know about Apoquel? They shouldn't even be making that reference. They should be saying there's clearly a problem here." Go and speak to your veterinarian. So, I don't, most vet, vet, veterinarians don't even appreciate us even throwing out label names of medications because it's really not in our wheelhouse. It's not in our lane. And um, I think as well, there's obviously conflicts with behavior depending on the school that a veterinarian's been to or their age or when they graduated. Nutrition's always a hot button as well when we start talking about nutrition. Um, so I think by, do, by, by, by having those types of conversations with our clients that then repeat them to veterinarians, we are very quickly going to be earmarked as professionals that probe into other areas that we shouldn't be getting involved in. They're the sort of criminal offences. Secondary offences are things like walking into a veterinarian's office without an appointment and expecting the frontline staff to drop what they're doing to talk to you because you're a fellow professional. Um, And I think we have to remember and we know this, but do we tap into it, that the staff that work on the front desk, they're actually the staff you need to impress because they're the gatekeepers. And they're the ones that are deciding whether your stuff or your material or your name or your flyer or whether you even get to speak to the veterinarian if the veterinarian is not your personal veterinarian. And if you sort of don't treat them with the respect they deserve and or make appointments and or dress appropriately, you're not getting anywhere you literally are starting on a back foot. I don't know if everybody else has similar experiences, but that's what I have been told by the veterinarian community.
3: I I would 100% agree with that. And it's especially true in making specific recommendations. Mm -hmm. And and when I talk to clients, I mean, and I'll give a perfect example because we had a discussion about this in the cat group a while ago, and we have various veterinarians in the cat group and and we were asking them to weigh in. So we were talking Mm -hmm. about a situation Um, with a cat who had inappropriate um, urination and was spraying, and this was my client and I felt in addition to the behavior work that we were doing that the cat probably needed medication. And so we were talking about what's the most appropriate way to communicate that with the veterinarian in in a way that shows that I respect the boundary between what I do and what the veterinarian does. And just to say we're we're a group of professionals who are all attempting to make life better for this cat and this cat owner. And what we agreed on was again that sort of list of keep it straight, the cat is spraying. I observed the cat Mm spraying in the home. Speaking to the client, I, I understand that the cat is spraying every day. The following circumstances, you know, are happening when the cat sprays based on my behavior consult, I believe the following circumstances are contributing to the cat spraying behavior. Um, If you agree, I believe the cat may benefit from some medication to relieve anxiety. I didn't say what medication or anything like that. You know, if you have any questions, please get in touch with me. And that was it. So it's all, you know, here's
1: what's happening in a very sort of bullet point way. And and Beth, you make a really good point there because I think as well, and I'm gonna throw this over to Christy and Sam and Holden and Judy, who are sort of really um, competent trainers is, I think as well, it's how that information is given to the vet because if the vet sort of receives a voicemail that's just blur versus a really nice document that sort of explains how you've worked with the client and what you know and what you're seeing, I think a vet's going to look at that differently in terms of credibility?
2: I've had uh, a lot of success with very short video clips, particularly for animals who are stoic in the, in the veterinary office. So they may you know, be experiencing learned helplessness and they're shut down and totally different behavior is seen when they're out and about. Um, and particularly when I want a pain rule out, um, I almost always send the client along with some video clips so that the veterinarian can take a look at that.
1: That's a really good point, because I know when I work with Jennifer with clients and I mean, I had a client that came to training once. It was a Shiloh Shepherd. It was about 11 months old. And the owner told me in the first class, my dog won't stand up or walk anywhere. It just always wants to lie down. And I I know that's not normal. You need to take your dog to the veterinarian. So and we literally stopped what we were doing and walked over to the clinic. And it turned out and I took video uh, that we'd sort of, you know, moving across the, the grass. So that when we got there, Dr. Jennifer could look at the video and it actually turned out to be, and I don't know the name for it, one of you guys might, that growing pains that the larger breeds get when they grow too quickly and it causes a lot of discomfort and stress on the bones. And, this, and they weren't overly concerned about it, but the point was that the video really helped her. She didn't have to take the dog back outside to try and coerce it to walk around. So video is always really helpful. Really helpful. Especially is that we don't have the nomenclature. We, we don't sort of say, well, lateral recumbent, you know, "what posterior, whatever the um, nomenclature mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And
0: video is so much easier <laughs> these days than it was 20 years ago, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, to, to get our clients to do it, to do it ourselves. And it is, uh, you know, they, the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. A video is probably worth a million. So.
1: I'm going to throw a question out because we have a question that's come up from Facebook and it was from a lady who was on the panel and um, listening to the panel last month. And she said, um, it's Kelly, and she said, I'm the one who asked last call about being surrounded by aversive trainers whose main referral source is veterinarians. So her question is, am I supposed to refer to these vets? So, who wants to answer that? So, as a trainer in an area with a aversi- if you have a veterinarian in your community that is referring business to aversive trainers, would you refer would you refer your clients to that veterinarian, Judy?
4: I actually make an appointment with that veterinarian. I take them lunch or whatever, and I just sit with them and I explain to them the emotional well being of animals, how horse based training works. They need to be educated. A lot of them are no more educated on training methods than our clients are. So they're no different. So I always go in and educate them first. And
1: so first, that's before, that's so really first, first before you would consider making the referral.
4: Before I would consider making yeah. a referral. Yeah. And before I take it any further, you know, I, and before I avoid referring them as right. well. Right. And I, I do make a point to tell them I am a fear-free <laughs> Uh, trainer. And I only refer to vets that I believe have the same feelings as I have. And I would really like to refer to you. You're a great vet. How can I help you with this? Because they don't know. yeah, And and they're generally pretty happy about that. It's about how you go in there though, right? It's about how you approach it and how you talk to
1: them. And, it, and it's about right. making, it's about, you know, because I'm just a huge believer that one of our key roles is to try and shape this industry on a daily basis. Right. Um, it, it Holden just sent me a message. I, I was actually going to mention Lunch and Learns, Holden, because I think I've used those a lot in shelters and in veterinarians. How many of you guys do Lunch and Learns with veterinarians?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Like and there's actually a free PPG webinar on that very topic that I did a couple of years ago about the structure of Lunch and Learns. Because a lot of veterinarians are very open to it, especially if you take food in for them. I never made any money. I used to give them, pay, I was paying for the people to have lunch just so I could get half an hour of their time to shove some information at them. But yeah, they, they are. So hold on, is that something that you use in your business?
2: I personally haven't, but I, yeah. but I have colleagues who have.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of veterinarian, I know a lot of veterinarian clinics, well, not a lot, I can't say a lot, but based on the ones that I've had intimate knowledge with, they do tend to do a staff training day once a month. And they will do an extended lunch or they'll open a slightly later in the afternoon. So sometimes you can sort of squeeze onto the agenda for that. So, yeah.
0: Well, and it can be very effective, too, because we talked about needing needing to reach those frontline people. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to do it. And yeah. now we're doing the education so the vet doesn't have to do it. Yeah. Plus, we're buying everybody lunch. Um, that yeah. can work well. And it, the other thing is around Christmas time. And I think mm-hmm. I mentioned this um, in our last session too, I generally give the vets I work with a book, my favorite book of the year to share amongst their staff and to read themselves. <laughs> you buy a lot of books, behavior. Don
1: Hanson. You must buy a lot of books.
0: <laughs> I do. I do. But you should it's, get
1: them to your staff and yeah, you should get shared. It's been very effective. <laughs> yeah, what a great idea. I had a friend who used to drop donuts off every Friday morning. And literally would, that was what he would do for the whole Friday morning. We'd just drop donuts. He had like five veterinarians he referred to, and every morning he did the rounds. and they, they referred to him. They, they knew Andy, Andy Aaron, they knew who he was. As soon as his car drove up, they were all salivating. they knew exactly what was coming through the door in that, in that, in that box. Yeah, so just little things just to tell people, "Thank you. I appreciate you. we appreciate what you do.:
0: But then I'm going to give you a tip here in December. Don't bring them donuts or baked goods because they are getting it from their clients. And if you bring in something yeah. fresh and healthy, yeah, they will love you for it. Well, and I wouldn't recommend really donuts like any day of the
1: week, but yeah, whatever works. <laughs> yeah, whatever works. Okay, so what, what other tangibles are there? What other sort of tangible things can trainers do or pet care people do to get through the door so that their veterinarians not only consider them credible but also Christy let's go to you because you haven't spoken and you always it's always worth listening to you.
5: I think I might have kind of a different context I'm not sure because I'm very rural and in I've always lived and worked in areas where there's um socioeconomic depression is always a factor with my clients and you know um sort of people in general So one of the things that I do is I like to coach my clients. Um, So this is like an indirect, a couple steps removed from veterinarians is to just be really upfront with their veterinarians because veterinarians get a lot of this messaging from the public and maybe even my clients, you know, before they became aware that veterinarians are just trying to make money. All they do is is get you know, more tests just to suck more money from us. It's all this money-grubbing thing. And it's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it adds a lot of a burden to the veterinary profession and it, they really suffer for it. Yeah. And I I think that you know one of the ways that I like to push back against that is to just let people know when you go in to, s- to see your veterinarian, your veterinarian has probably absorbed all this messaging and is trying to save you money. So we certainly get this from our vets. They'll be like, well, it could be this, but this is an inexpensive option we can try first. And I always let my vets know like right up front, to say you know what hey i don't mind trying a more expensive option if that's going to bring my dog relief more quickly that's totally fine with me and i would appreciate you know so just i, I coached my yeah. clients to say hey vets are in this position and it's a hard position to be in yeah and they're trying to save you money because they've received constant mm-hmm. barrage of messaging that they're expensive you know and i I, yeah. I like to let my vets know and i like to let my clients let their vets know mm-hmm. that they're willing to try stuff if it's going to be a welfare boost or Um, You know, to help things along more quickly, just to to be really upfront and let the vets know that. And I feel like vets appreciate that from us.
4: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, every time as a professional, every time you make a snarky comment about another professional or you sort of there's a hidden innuendo there, you know, at some point that's getting back to somebody. And again, it just deflates any credibility you might have. I mean, we're, we're in this together, aren't we? The pet owner, the veterinarian, the veterinarian staff and the professional trainer and everybody's advocating for that pet and you need to work together and I I mean personally I think if you can't speak well of somebody then don't work with them stay away from them and go and focus elsewhere but um I mean you know how often do we see on social media people posting bad stuff about professionals And it's just not necessary it's not effective is it really it's not effective all right I'm sorry go on on, Beth no go on Beth I, I mean I don't know how I don't know how it
3: is for people who work with dogs, for people who work with cats, we do get a sort of a number of very common errors that we see in people with veterinary visits. So um, inability or failure to use the litter box, we often see veterinarians testing for um, infections when infections are actually really uncommon in cats below the age of seven. Um, we see that's not doing like a really common um, problem that causes litter box problems is is diabetes, and another common one is high blood pressure. And we see vets not doing blood work, not taking blood pressure in those situations. And and so it's it's actually pretty common in the behavior problems that we see most often. It's it's not uncommon for the client to say, "I've already been to the vet," you know, especially you know litter box problem. You need to go to the vet first. I've already been to the vet. What did the blood work say? He didn't do blood work, you know, um, and so we're 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 always in this difficult position where we don't want to say to a client, "Well, your vet is not up on the latest information." We don't want to say that, but we really want the client to go back to the vet and say, "Could we look a little harder? Could we check again?" And so um, there's there's a lot of sort of dancing. <laughs> There's a lot
1: of dancing about that, about getting that. Well, it's, pol- it's politics, and there's always politics in business. Yeah. Isn't there, I mean, there is, and and we have to and we have to dance that fine line and and advocate for the pet and the owner, but also represent the professional. Um, right, yeah, I mean, and so what we typically do again is just straight
3: information. Well, diabetes can be a cause of litter box problems. Hyperthyroidism can be a cause of litter box problems. High blood pressure can be a cause of litter box problems. So, you know, I think it's important for you to check for those things, you know, and not to say your vet was wrong, not to mention the vet at all, but just, and so a lot of this stuff can be overcome by just sticking to the, the facts, just stick to the facts, just communicate
1: the facts and that's it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sam, um, here's a question for you as a male. There's two of you on today. Great. Um, obviously, the majority of veterinarians are females, aren't they? Um, do you do you think you, it might be an easier go for, for, for males to sort of develop credibility, or do you not think it matters in our industry?
6: Um, I mean, I work with both, and I have not found a problem. Yeah. I know with my own vet. And this is where it started. I would always because one of my dogs was. Fearful of other dogs in the vet's office, not of the vet. But I would always make a last appointment of the evening, and it was ironic that as the appointment would end, my vet would ask me questions about behavior. Mm-hmm. So then he and I would get into these discussions where, you know, an hour and a half after his office closed, you know, we're we're talking about this stuff, and next thing you know, some of his staff might join in. I also found that once you develop that relationship with a vet, he will refer you other vets. He will refer you to other vets. You know have vets call you up you have never heard of. I have vets call me up from out of state.
0: Yeah. Um,
6: and so, you know, the you know sitting and talking with them, just saying, listen, I, I don't know what you do as a vet. You know, I, I, I have my own pets. They go to the vets too. And half the time, I'm not sure I understand always what's going on. So let me just, you know, here's what's going on with this dog. And if I can, if I'm recommending, especially for a medical checkup due to something I saw during a behavior consult, I'll ask the client to ask their vet if they'll be comfortable with with me being there. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times the vet will have questions that even on a video clip, which I do send along, um, just may not get answered, may not get asked the right way. So between visiting with the vets prior, after, always forwarding over um, an assessment of what I've done as far as behavioral consult goes and anything else I've seen. And I try to use, I don't know if it's a universal software that they use or whatever, but I do use uh, the soap when, I, when I'm when i putting together my assessment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's easier for them to see it come in that form because they recognize that it's being professionally done.
1: Absolutely. And that you, you made two really good points there. And I'll hit the first one first because I think the other one, I think we can all jump onto that one. is. Um, I used to ask veterinarians, in what format would you like me to submit information about my clients? And often they would have a template they'd give you which you could fill in and then fax to them in the day, fax to them. <laughs> Um, or email to them rather than you sort of forcing them to go through and extrapolate information from a very detailed form that you might have. The other thing I want to say, and I've heard Shirag Patel say this multiple times, and I think it bears repeating, is that if you really want to develop a relationship with a vet, it might be worth scheduling an appointment with them and actually paying for the appointment and going in and meeting with them. And I know um, that's worked for a lot of people. And you might sort of roll your eyes and go, well, why do I have to pay? But if another professional wanted to tap into your knowledge and skills and develop credibility, would you suddenly drop an hour off your appointment schedule to do that? Maybe the first time you do that and then after that, they, having built some credibility, they may decide that they're not going to charge you necessarily. But um, I think Shirag also mentioned it in the context of if you have a dog that has a problem, book a double session so that the vet doesn't feel under pressure to work quickly with the animal, which then allows you to do your thing to help sort of smooth or oil grease the wheels, so to speak. Um, But that that evening appointment for me is gold, isn't it, Sam? Because if you book the last appointment, then not necessarily under waiting room pressure, Yep. Which means that you, um, yeah, when, when I lived in Oxford, Mississippi for a while, where we bought this animal hospital, I had four dogs at the time. And I actually had each dog registered a different veterinarian. And they probably wondered, they probably thought I had um, Munchausens So they said, you're always going in there with my dogs. Because it was the best way to get to know them by taking my own dogs into the clinic and actually spending time with them. Um, and then I found that I started to build up relationships and got referrals. So, you know, it's worth thinking about if you've got multiple pets, maybe looking at using different veterinarians if you're looking at building relationships with different veterinarians a lot of times
6: if you go along with them you know if you go along with a client when they're seeing a vet um the vets that at least that i've done that with and there's probably a couple dozen um, almost all of them are very appreciative of the fact that a i went along and b i was not trying to tell them their job i was just telling them what we saw and also made it a point that i was there to learn
1: Has anybody here ever been refused into an appointment with a client because the veterinarian wasn't comfortable having the trainer? Um,
4: I've got something to say about that that we haven't covered, and that's the confidentiality aspect of it. Yeah, At least in my area, the vet will not look at my forms, the vet will not talk to me unless the client has given me the okay to talk to the vet. And I have all of my clients sign, yes, they agree to that, or no, they don't. So... The vets want me to come in and I, like Don, I go into the vets with my clients quite frequently and I have vets that will even call me and say, hey, next week Candy's coming in. Can you come and handle her while we do whatever procedure? Mm-hmm. Because Candy bites everybody but me. Yeah. So, you know, I'm often called in and, and it is very true. That's where we get a lot of referrals because they yeah. see us. They see how we're interacting with the client and the dog. And they're like, I'm going to refer her to my other clients. So, yeah, it's, let, it's good.
1: Let me ask you a question, Julian. this is a wider question mm-hmm. for everybody, because I, I often think that when I, when I make this statement, I sort of see people trying not to roll their eyes. And it's something that I do feel quite passionate about. And I think I do because I've had veterinarians mention it to me is we... Many of us say, yeah, there's a client confidentiality. The information between me and my Mm -hmm. client's confidential. But I don't think we hold that as sacrament as a veterinarian does. Because I'll give you an example. When you see somebody post on Facebook, working with a dog, it's a Springer Spaniel. The dog's a bit of an asshole. The owner's making it difficult for me. Most professionals would look at that and go, that is an absolute breach of confidentiality. The fact that you're even discussing you have a client with a Britney Spaniel is a breach of confidentiality. And I, have, what I totally got, agree. Thank you. Because yeah. people well, always, always and, tell me and, you're really extreme. And it's like, no, veterinarians would I, not do that. They wouldn't do it. Let's take it a step further.
4: I have a lot of clients that are very well known. They're sports figures. They're TV personalities. You know, major company, owners yeah. of major companies. I never say who my clients are. Yeah. I never say it. Yeah. And I, I had... I'm sorry. I, I was
1: I was told by a lawyer. I was told by a lawyer once that you shouldn't even let somebody know you have the client. That nope. even so, so if you're servicing somebody who lives across the road from you, and you tell another neighbor, "Oh yes, I'm training her and her dog," that is a breach of confidentiality. Correct. What, what do you I guys agree. think about
0: that? Depends. I think if we're dealing with a behavioral case,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think we have to be thinking about confidentiality. But if you're just teaching someone how to train their dog, I don't know. I think that then that's a little.
1: See, I, as, a, as a client, if I sign up for a plumber or an electrician or a dentist or a doctor, I don't deem it anyone else's business that I've chosen to go to that service provider. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Christy? Oh. Let's put Christy on the spot.
5: I think... Um there's probably a difference in my mind of um, sort of vague references that we put right. on social media, like a client, you know, so if I post a, 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 a graphic or something, yeah. educating um, people on Facebook about counter conditioning. Yeah. I, I don't think I would feel like it, it was sort of a breach. If I said, if I said something like um, a previous client mm-hmm. of mine found that um, when they're, you know, they when their child jostled their dog, um, the dog startled awake, and and it was inappropriate. But we used counter conditioning, and mm-hmm. um, and now this dog is has improved. Right. I don't see that as being a problem, but I definitely would not.
1: But there's no identifiers there, is there? Right.
5: Yeah. Right. So, but I I, I definitely not... wouldn't point to someone across the street and say that's one of my ex clients or something. I, that right. that yeah. to me would be.
1: Yeah.
5: Beyond. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe it's gray, but I'm not an ethicist, and I'm. It's a huge topic. I'm so glad I'm not an ethicist. Yeah, we should ask
1: (laughs) Eduardo. (laughs) Eduardo loves ethics. Eduardo, what do you think? Where does that line... I mean, how... I I mean, because I I know the veterinary community feel quite strongly about some of the things that they see this side of the industry doing in terms of um, acknowledging what's going on with clients.
7: uh, Within much of academia, that would be a breach of confidentiality. I mean, I should not be... there should be nothing where I'm giving you any particulars Mm -hmm. that would be identifiable Mm -hmm. for a student. I'm not, I shouldn't be giving you information that this student is involved with me Mm -hmm. necessarily who is involved in the research that I might be doing as well. So there shouldn't be information about that. I shouldn't be able to tell you, yeah, yeah, that person was one of the subjects or their dog was one of the subjects in my research. So yeah, I think it's just safe. Um, But I, I should say we're, we're distinguishing here. I mean, I deal more with the, mm-hmm. the ethics, the, the science component of it, and the, not so much the legalese. So I can't tell you necessarily, I, I can just tell you my own personal policies,
4: well,
3: I mean, which I is can, that
7: I don't, I don't divulge information um, right. from an academic standpoint. I know I'm not allowed to right. in many cases.
1: I guess the question for me is, don't most animal trainers have something in their paperwork that says "Or oh, your information is private and confidential? So good yes. if you
7: don't.
1: Yeah. Yes. So I guess what's the client's expectation of that? I mean, we, Judy explained, and we've, we've all experienced this, that when you go to a veterinarian, they won't embark on talking to you about one of their clients unless the client signs a release. I mean, I, I, it definitely works both
3: ways. So, you know, when I, when I get a referral from a veterinarian, because I get clients lots of ways, one of ways, Mm -hmm. one of the ways is referrals from vets. Um, I always like to um, thank the vet and send them a report, you know, just, and I know as, as one, if one doctor referred you to another doctor, they would send a report. I always like to thank the vet and send a brief report to say, you know, thank you for, for referring Bitsy to me. This is what I found on my consult. Um, also, because I know that if the client goes back to the vet and says the behaviorist told me blah 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 blah, and it sounds crazy, you know, I want the vet to know this is what I said. I said, um, so that's part mm. of it. Um, but but so when I talk to someone, um, and especially if I feel like I need to get more medical information, I always ask them first of all. In my paperwork, it says you know please sign something that says I can talk to your vet. But I also always ask them to call the vet and say. Beth, my cat behavior consultant, is going to be calling you, and it's okay for you to talk to her about Bitsy. And I do it the other way, too. When I see the client, I say to them, because your vet referred you to me, I would like to just tell your vet that I've seen you. Um, I'm not going to talk about it because, I mean, my home visits tend to be two hours, and we talk about lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I say, I'm not going to talk about anything of the personal, any of the confidential stuff we talked about. I just want to say, Bitsy is not paying okay. in, the, in the, the litter box. I advise getting a new litter box, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then I ask the client, is that okay? Are you comfortable with that? Yes. Yeah. So I get permission. I always get permission all the way around. And if the client says, no, I'm not comfortable with that, I don't do yeah. it.
1: And, and Betty, you're making some really valid points because... you you know, we can say, well, we don't think that's confidential, maybe veterinarians to have sort of a a narrower scope. But ultimately, if we're expecting veterinarians to refer their clients to us, they are going to want us to handle their clients information in the same way that they will handle it. And I think we have to remember that. And, you know, it's like if you're you're referring to multiple, this is another thing that came out of the relationship we had with a, a former relationship with a veterinarian is that they insisted or tried to insist that we didn't refer any business to any other veterinarians in the area. And we were just like, well, absolutely not. We can't do that. I mean, you're going to refer based on a client's needs and wants. Yeah. Because they, because they feel if you're referring a client outside their control, there could be a compromise of that client's information, quality of care, minimum standards or whatever. So, and I know this might sound like it's a bit off track from the topic, but I think these are all really valid points in terms of whether veterinarians are holding us as being credible. Um, and if we want to work with veterinarians, we've got to be able to stand up and have credible conversations with them. And they've got to see us as being credible.
7: Yeah. Uh,
4: you know, I, some, oh, go ahead.
7: Oh, no, I was just going to make a couple suggestions. One is just to operationalize a bit of what we're talking about here. Almost everything at some level is talking about the relationship with the vet and how you're building that relationship. And what I love hearing from everybody that what what's specifically being talked about in many cases are very specific, overt behaviors that trainers can engage in yeah. to increase that relationship mm-hmm. So we're not talking hypothetically about how you make the vet happier. We're talking about bringing donuts or healthy treats. We're talking just the way that it's it's wonderful to see as a behaviorist, um, to see talking about other humans in ways that we can interact with them to increase this thing that we're calling our relationship through overt behaviors. That's great. Um, but all of that seems to be focused on the relationship. I will provide one side resource which is at least uh related in some way which is the last vir- virtual behavior chat that i did was vet behavior focused so it was uh chris Pockel, um laura, ha- laura haug mm-hmm. and uh and valerie tins and i that we did a couple hour chat um now this was more specific to vet behaviorism and that inner working with behavior analysis and behaviorism, uh, how we approach that, like that interconnected component. But a big big part of that was really focused on behaviors and veterinarians necessarily, right? It was just a little more nuanced in that direction. So that's, if you look at that, we have a two hour chat, we did talk about that. So there's my little plug there.
1: Send me the link for that and I will include it and then it goes out. Yeah,
7: sure. Um, So I will say that when we're, I know I'm, I'm a bit of an odd person in this group because I'm in academia. I'm a, I'm a research scientist for the most part. Um, So I'm not in the same position that many people here are certainly not many listeners. I'm not necessarily trying, and I'm in a vet school on top of everything else. (laughs) So my building of the relationship um and, and well even if i make it even more odd i'm in a vet school that is actually not even in the same hemisphere that i'm in right now uh because of the pandemic but nonetheless uh i am part of i'm faculty in a vet school right so at university of adelaide in australia while i'm in seattle um so go figure um so it's a little easier for me to build relationships with veterinarians considering i most, most of my, I'm working on research with them. They also happen to often be research scientists themselves. Um, so it's a little different, but nonetheless, I love the fact that the focus here is on building relationships. And I think if we're just really trying to define this more specifically, if we're looking, if there's a take-home message for the listener, it's how can I do things to get vets on, to get those veterinarians on my side? Right. And here are the specific actions yeah. that I can do. Here are the overt behaviors that I can engage in. And there is, I, I will say we should understand and be empathetic to the fact that veterinarians have a much more difficult task than the behaviorist has, than the trainer has for getting the veterinarian. Because the veterinarian, we know they have to have particular education. We know they have to have a particular degree. What do they know about who to refer to? for behavior issues. Mm-hmm. I can't keep up with all the certifications that are out there. Mm-hmm. So I certainly know the veterinarians can't. They have no idea what degree requirements, the, the fact that there essentially is none or how to refer in that direction. So yeah, it, at the end of the day, it has to be about how are you making yourself uh, clearly professional and present to the veterinarian and that's about building that relationship
1: and, and i have to add as a business person so much of that is actually marketing yourself as a brand it's not about right. being a dog trainer and it's recognizing the value of network marketing and how it is not something that is passive or happens overnight yep. so i mean i'll ask you guys and I'll, I'll talk about my experience first but whenever i went to a new area I would actually target two or three vets that then went on to my strategic plan. And I had, a, I had a task every week of what I was doing to start to infiltrate that particular organization. And when I had successfully gotten into them, I would move on to the next ones. And that could be everything from sending fax campaigns to referring clients to going in myself to sex, taking in jars of cookies with my logo on the glass jar because then they put it on the desk you know dropping off and flyers there's all kinds of stuff you can do and I think sometimes we expect because we're well qualified and we're good trainers we expect to walk through the door and have somebody go sure come on in give me your brochures I'll start referring you right now Mrs Smith there's a dog trainer here for you and and the reality is that's just that's not think about yourself what do you have to know and feel about a professional to refer somebody else to them I mean, I have to have personally experienced a professional. If Judy phones me and says, do you know a dog trainer in Tampa, Florida? The only dog trainer I'm referring to, Judy, is someone that I've met, I know, and I trust. And that's it works exactly the same the other way around. And you don't build that overnight. That can take weeks, if not months.
0: You know, there's like I a think that's a things. really good point, because a lot of people think things happen overnight. And, and like mm-hmm. you said, it really takes building trust. And when you're in a community with several vets, you've, that's, it's a, it's a project to build up that relationship yeah. with all of them in the community.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: The one thing I used to do, John, is I used to have a nice and um, welcome bag that went to all my clients that had real tangible giveaways in it and, and all kinds of offers. And I would, because I've, I've never really been into the BNI networks, because for those that know me well, you know that I'm not really a group person. I'm quite happy to be a hermit. But I would choose one groomer, one pet care, one boarding, one pet sitter, one vet. And I would tell them, you are going to be the only people that go into my welcome bag if we can create a sort of trusting referral, credible relationship. And it works. And then when you've done that, you say, well, that's within this 20 miles of geography. Now I'm going to do the same thing over here with this 20 miles of geography so that you build these really nice referral groups in different areas. So you're actually telling them, if you give me your card and give me your information, I'm gonna refer clients to you. You're, You're providing for them. You're not actually asking them to do anything for you. And suddenly you will find one day that you'll wander in there and you'll find your business cards on the front desk. And that's a really nice feeling because then you know that they're there because they know you, they trust you, and they respect you.
5: I think but we've talked. I- Go ahead. Okay. I would feel bad if we made it through this whole hour and I didn't put in a plug for the husbandry project, which the Academy completed a couple of years ago. So I think one way that we can show ourselves to be professional is to actually be good at what we do and be professionals and, and, you know, veterinarians are used to to working with standard operating procedures Mm -hmm. and, and results based and sort of focused and also being efficient. And the Academy's husbandry project took a whole bunch of trainers and a whole bunch of members of the public and a whole bunch of dogs, tested a bunch of training plans, um, tested a bunch of like literature to help uh, dog uh, guardians, you know, not necessarily professionals, to train dogs to do useful behaviors and to gain useful conditioned emotional responses to veterinary context. And we have all of this and it's available for free. Thank you, um, Holden, for putting the link there. So I think it, this is, you know, one of the ways this information is there. It's useful. It shows how professional we are and how we can, you know, any dog can, can come to us and, and we can sort of mow down the problem uh, you know if they have fears or if they're even just neutral here we can we can change up things and we can make the veterinary experience better safer for the vet you know find me a vet that wants to, t- to work with a fearful dog. is you know that they would love to have joyful happy yeah. stationing dogs so yeah. th- that's one sort of concrete useful way that we can really um put ourselves out there as professionals which we are
1: Absolutely. So it's just a combination of so many things, isn't it? It's building credibility. It's being professional. It's working standardized procedures. It's protecting client confidentiality. I mean, the list just goes on and on, doesn't it?
4: Okay. One, one thing that Beth said, she writes up her report and sends it to the vet. And, you know, our vets can't be behavior specialists also. And when they read a report like Beth was referring to, that gives them information to help their clients later. And also what uh, a warder was saying, when you work together with them you, to, for, to fix a problem or to solve a problem or to help them, you're building a team type feel. And when they feel like they can team up with you, they're going to call you with the next dog that they see that has a similar behavior. And they're going to say, you helped me with Scott. Can you now help me with, you know, Brownie? And you start building that trust and that relationship and you become a team instead of a you know whatever you want to call it instead yeah. of two different fields you're teaming together and working on one solution
1: yeah and and i think that also goes into judy as well as when we as trainers is that when we when a vet or any referral asks us for something that maybe when it's not in our expertise that we should feel really comfortable referring that out to somebody who is because that gives us credibility if you, you know, uh, medical professionals recognize that there's too much out there for all of us to be highly competent at everything. And for me, if a veterinarian says to me, well, you know, I have a client with separation anxiety. And I say, you know what? I know someone that specializes in separation anxiety. Let me get the details for you. That makes you look like a real professional that you are happy to pass that out to somebody who understands and can expedite that process. And I think sometimes we don't do that because we're a little bit too protective about our own living and our own customers. And there's actually, no, we're, I think all of us will benefit from business growth if we network together and refer together and um, cheerlead together. I think everybody benefits from that. I think,
0: now, as we've I been mean,
1: t- sorry. Talking
0: here, we've been talking a lot about working with vets and referring for pets that have behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. And while that's very, very important, it's a small segment of what many of us see. At least I see far more dogs for just basic training than I do for behavioral stuff. And so one of the things I'd like us to look at here is how do we get, we, we know that the vast majority of people with dogs don't even think about going to a training class. What can we do with vets to get more people to get their clients enrolled in a puppy class Get them enrolled in a basic manners class so those behavioral problems never develop.
7: Uh, I was I was going to say I only work with animals that have metaphysical issues, so <laughs> I'm going zero for three in my jokes. By the way, with uh, I was zero for two the other day. So yeah. how
1: many I'm obscure. the common denominator. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's me. I'm, I, I'm dumb. <laughs> I,
7: as I was gonna say, as a behaviorist, wouldn't that be ironic that I'm dealing with metaphysical issues? Um, I, that was it. I just wanted to go for zero for three on jokes for obscurity today, so just to add to the zero and two from previous yeah. day. Uh, so perfect.
1: <laughs> oh my no! So so, Don, what you're asking is what? How does everybody and um, work with their veterinarians to sort of support us in helping get the pets prepped and ready? for the relationship, the
0: lifelong relationship they're going to have with their vets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how we get vets to see the the importance yeah. of that. Because, yeah. you know, like, I, I've been doing this a long time. And at this point in my life, what I really want to focus on is preventing <laughs> behavioral problems. Right. Because <laughs> I think there's not enough emphasis <laughs> there. Um, nobody wants a dog with aggression issues. Yeah. People have them, but it's it's it takes a, a huge commitment to solve those. So what can we do to help vets understand that getting people interested in understand behavior and training early is going to be beneficial to the pet owner as well as to the vet long term. If you've got a dog that goes in all waggy tailed yeah. or a cat that yeah. pops out of their carrier and hops on the, yeah. the, the table and says, I'm here. How can we work better with vets to make that the common thing?
1: Well, I'm going to go, let me jump in first and, and somebody else can jump in. I think, first of all, I think first and foremost, it's show and tell, isn't it? I, I, and I, I really sort of can relate to Christy because for many years I lived in very rural Florida, which was almost sort of Alabama border. Um, and the, the, the vets that I took my dogs to sort of didn't even want to see vets because all their animals were cows and donkeys and horses. It was a big cow and horse area. Um, and I asked them if I could get a massive lobby. And I asked them if I could use their lobby once a week just to do free puppy play classes. Um, and I said, it'd be great because it'll bring people in that don't even know mm-hmm. you're here. And they just employed a vet for small animals. And for the first couple of weeks, they were not interested at all. They just gave me a key to the front door um, everything was locked and sanitized. And then, number one, they started getting new clients because clients were coming to the facility and seeing it. And then number two, the clients they were getting, the animals having played there for several weeks, were very comfortable there so that when they went in for their first sort of um, inspection, so to speak, dogs were very comfortable and very happy and then obviously as the dogs then would transition from puppy area to pet manners the dogs became you know owners have a lot more um, ability to maneuver them in a vet's office because they're comfortable there and b they've got some puppy manners so that for me so if i'd have tried to go in and dr anderson and i became really good friends and he told me if you'd have come in here as a little english woman with your little flyers and your position statements i would have just patted you on the head and passionized you and said go home And I recognized that approach wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to be able to go in there and sort of talk to them about the academics of that. That the best way to do it was to say, okay, how can I bring people to their clinic that they're going to benefit from me being there? They benefited from me being there because they got new clients, and the clients they got who had a training culture were starting to show behaviors that their other clients were not showing in the clinic. And before long, they were actually saying, can we do a second session of these every week? Because we've now got other people that want to sign up for it. So for me, that was a really good example of show and tell, of letting them see what you can do and then how that can benefit them. Because ultimately, everybody's asking, what's in it for me? Why is it making my life easier? Why is it making my business life easier? And if you can show them how it's making life easier, for the pet, the pet owner and the veterinarian, whether that's a financial easier or whether it's a, this appointment now takes four minutes, not 20 minutes, they will soon buy into working with you. So
3: number one reason cats don't get taken to the veterinarian is because cat owners can't get them in the carrier. Um, Number one reason, so carrier training, every vet wants every pet owner, every cat owner to have carrier training. And I found, you know, I have relationships with, with three veterinarians, very close relationships with three veterinarians. There's probably half a dozen that recommend me, but I have close relationships with three veterinary practices in my area. And that means that I visit them often, my cats go to them, you know, I see them all the time. And what, what I've done for them, which they appreciate very much, and it's so simple because we've talked about that. We've talked, you know, they, they notice that my cat's going in and out of the carrier very easily. And we've talked a lot about, you know, this stuffing the cat in the carrier, that kind of thing. And I said to, uh, said to the first one, the first time that came up, I said, I can make you a flyer that you can give out to people. Um, and, of course, if I make them a flyer, it's got my branding on it. Um, and how easy was it? Because at first I thought, I, I, you know, then I would make some videos and so forth, which takes time and effort and so forth. But the truth is that if I'm making a flyer and sending people in the flyer to YouTube videos, I can actually send them to any YouTube videos. And the truth is that uh, an organization in the UK called I cat Care made a series of astoundingly good videos on carrier training. They were uh, done by Sarah Heath, who's like the goddess of, of cat behavior. And um, so I made a flyer in which I had a brief discussion that I wrote myself about how important it is to have your cat comfortable in the carrier. And then um, links to those six videos, each one of which is four minutes long, um, saying here's a really excellent resource from iCatCare. And you know, so it's very clear that it's not my videos. And I've made it very, very clear. And there's nothing there except links to the videos. So I've, I've appropriated nothing that belongs to anyone else. And that flyer has my branding on it. And the vets really appreciate it because when someone comes in and says, you know, I, I had to fight with Fluffy to get him in the carrier, they well, we have this, this brochure. And I also gave it to them as a PDF because they also call owners and say, hey, we haven't seen Fluffy in a year. And when the owner says, well, you know, I can't get Fluffy in the carrier, they have a PDF that they can send to say, here's how you can
1: make it a lot easier to get Fluffy in the carrier. Educational marketing, it's very powerful.
0: You mentioned PDFs. So I'm going to throw this out here too. For providing reports back to vets, um, what I typically do now is I do send them a PDF because they like that because they can put it into their – if they're if they're computerized. And we still yeah, have right. a couple of vets that aren't. Yeah. But if it's a PDF, they can put that right in their client's file and keep it forever without having to have a file copy. So if you're not doing uh, PDFs, look into that because they really like that.
1: Yeah,
0: they can attach it to the client's
1: file. Yep. Yeah.
5: I have one final point maybe that would bring it all together. I think one of the things that it's really important for us to do as dog professionals is to support the advocacy of other professional institutions when it comes to the importance of socialization when you're doing the socialization versus vaccination thing. So there's other organizations that are trying to get awareness out there about the importance of socialization so aside from teaching really great really clean puppy classes I think we can support our sister organizations in trying to get that message out there that's something that would be a really big bang for bucket. definitely we
1: we have a really nice flyer on the PPG website that was written by Linda Michaels and it was written probably seven eight years ago and it's called socialization and vaccination and vaccinations to show that one doesn't come at the loss of another that, you know, you can do both, both can both have their place at the right time. Yeah.
7: Nikki, uh, I think you, uh, you have a, a task list here to do for the PPG website, PPG potential sponsored pamphlet, which is uh, something like a, you know, whatever it is, 12, 15, 20 point mm-hmm. list, 20 bullet points of, how to increase your veterinarian relationship as a trainer. So whatever that is, increasing your your trainer-veterinarian relationship. And it's just that list of 12, 15, 20. Like, do this, do that. Very, very specific behaviors that you can work on.
1: I think it's a great idea. And I have a feeling it's already in the vet pack. But I will certainly take a delve into it and have a look. Probably not yeah. points, but it's certainly um, several points. Yeah, I
7: I have almost yeah. no insight in that yeah. other than I think it's a, it's nice a good suggestion.
1: idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then the other thing I want to talk about is that I have a marketing background, and one of the things that we sort of always talked about marketing is that. About 67% of the customers that you have the potential Mm. to get have not made the buying decision yet. They're way down the pipeline. So everything that you're doing on social media today is planting seeds and building credibility. So when that 67% of customers get a puppy or get a dog or get a cat, they go, oh, hang on a minute. I've been following Beth Adelman for a year. She puts out some really good stuff. And it's the same with veterinarians. Don't go to veterinarians just when you need something from them. Think about marketing yourself as a professional, credible, professional, competent dog trainer and build that relationship. So when they do need a dog trainer, they go, well, hang on a minute. Didn't that girl with blonde hair, that attractive woman with blonde hair come in here a few months ago? What was her name? Ju, Ju? Oh, it was Judy Luther. So, so that then your name is at the forefront of their brain because you've sort of had that, you've ongoing provided. And one of the things that Beth mentioned, which is really powerful, I mean, educational marketing is really powerful. And it's very credible because people don't feel like they're being sold to. So when Beth's putting flyers into vet's offices with her logo on and some great training advice, a veterinarian doesn't think that's a sales pitch. They just think, wow, what a great piece of education. And they're happy to pass it on. To their customers so ultimately the customer sees it and goes oh if i if i need a cat trainer to help me this is the person i'm going to go to so only about seven percent of your prospects are actually buying today most of them are buying next month or next year and you have to build credibility so when they're ready to pull the trigger you're the person they're coming to i'll get off my soapbox now
0: (laughs) top of mind awareness it's a huge part of marketing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think this might be
7: the time where I say bye. So okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be leaving. It's also a great way to stop me from the potential of uh, uh, telling don't another I bad 0 joke. Don't go for
0: 4? <laughs> yeah, I,
7: I don't want to go 0 for 4. I think we've we've already done I mean I'll just be heading in the direction of like puns and limericks at that point so um we'll leave it at that but thank you everybody
1: thank you for your great suggestion I'm going to look at that because I think I think we can put together some nice information that gives people tangibles as to um how they can better work with their vets
7: yeah and and Holden provided a link there that's useful as well so that's that's wonderful and As always, I I love being involved in these advocacy panels and getting to see everybody here. Um, I don't get to see any of the listeners, but uh, uh, hi, listeners. So um, (laughs) thank you. I'll I'll see everybody else soon. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Eddie. Just looking on Facebook to see if we have got any more questions that have come in. Somebody's asking about what about breeders and pet sitters. Jennifer, I'm not sure what the context of your question is, so if you can just flesh that out a bit, I can try and pop it to the panel. Um, get some nice feedback. People say it's been really helpful to listen to everybody. So, cool.
0: Someone asked where is the vet pack. Is there a? Do we have a quick link for that on the website someplace?
1: It's in the member area. I can pop the link there, but you have to be logged into the website to access it, but I will do that right now. Okay. Yeah.
0: And listeners, if you're not looking in the chat, um, Holda did um, post the link to the AVSAB position statement on puppy socialization. They've got some great position statements. The new one they have on uh, positive reinforcement training is uh, can be a great conversation starter with a vet too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
1: put the links on Facebook as well if anybody wants them from there.
2: I think that, you know, while I, I believe that these position statements were i am not, you know, part of the AVSAB, but I believe the position statements were written with a, a wide range of audience in mind, I find that clinicians, veterinarians are more open to receiving something from this obviously highly respected organization that has links to primary sources to research, you know, they're actually going to dig into and have the, the ability to really look at the research behind, you know, some of the stuff we're saying versus, you know, I'm hesitant sometimes to send these types of resources to clients because, you know, they don't have the time or wherewithal or right. really care to, to dig deeply. But um, veterinarians are usually much more open to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to plug and um, PPG is actually in the process of developing a pet, public, uh, pet owner publication that will um, speak to pet owners every month. It will be like a mini version of Barks, but it will the no, there'll be no industry nomenclature. It'll just be very nicely written, happy, friendly, fun. And each month it will focus on um, all kinds of different advocacy issues to help pet owners make the best decisions for their pets. So I think obviously that's also a great medium to get information. It's being designed in a way that members or non-members can actually use it with their clients as well, because it will provide some great insight. So um, that's, I don't know if I should even be talking about that but I am so I'm probably going to get my hands wrapped afterwards by Don <laughs> but it's one of the initiatives coming out of the brand new PPG advocacy program that we're rolling out so I'm really excited about that because I think one of the things that we could do a much better job of is providing educational materials to pet owners that they find easy to read fun to read and very informative whether that's everything from 10 tips to training your cat to go into a crate to what's the best, you know, what's the best type of harnesses to look at. I think there's just so much information that we can help provide to pet owners. So anybody who well, wants What's the to-
0: type of thing that members will be able to provide to veterinarians oh. with their name and logo on it as well. And, yeah. um, you know, a way for them to mm-hmm. help uh, help have some some of those good resources for to hand out.
5: Absolutely.
3: I agree with Holden, though, that vets, basically, they want it. They want to see things from peer-reviewed sources, yeah. and they want to see things from people with lots and lots of initials after the names. I have two initials after my name, but they want to see someone with at least three. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the things I did at my own vet years ago when Sophia Yin's groundbreaking book came out, Low Stress Handling for Dogs and Cats, um, which was written for veterinarians, um, I... I um, I met Sophia, I, I I was friends with Sophia and after the book came out, I met her at the next AVMA conference where she was pushing the book and everybody was super excited about it. And I bought a copy and my vets at that time were still scruffing cats and throwing them on their sides. And rather than go in and have a discussion about that, like me, Beth, who only has two initials is telling you this. What I said was, I'm just back from the AVMA conference this is what everyone is talking about at the ABMA conference, and here I bought you a copy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just posted the link to the PPG vet pack um, on Facebook, but it is in the member area, so you have to be logged in to see it.
0: <clears throat> okay. Anything else anyone has to, wants to add?
2: Um, I just, as a sort of shameless plug for Geek Week coming up in November, and for the Academy Plug the away, Teachers plug away,
1: Holden, plug away.
2: Husbandry project, um, I am presenting a case study where husbandry project plans in cooperative care were used. Um, yeah, I wanted to make sure Christy knew about that. Uh, so if you're interested in sort of seeing <laughs> uh, pieces of the plan kind of in action, um, look for that in November.
1: Yeah, thank you for plugging Geek Week, because I would have forgotten. So, um, Geek Week, I think almost everybody on here, and, um, Beth speaking, Judy speaking, Christy's not speaking this year. How did we manage to not get you speaking? You spoke last year. Holden speaking. Yeah, Sam's helping. I moved session. this
5: year, so I said no to any yeah. other... Christy, Christy,
2: you, you do make a cameo appearance in one of my presentations. There so you go. Ah, oh, there.
1: Make sure <laughs> you get the royalties. <laughs> okay so any any final last words of advice from anybody before we wrap this up and then i'll let don talk us out
0: okay well thank you everyone thank you panel thank you listeners um we'll have another topic coming up here in another four weeks so watch for that we'll be promoting it on the facebook page and through other ppg channels
1: can i plug it can i plug it
0: you can plug it.
1: Yeah, it's going to be and the title changed in the last sort of hour, thanks to Beth. The title is now Advocate Advocating to Let Dogs Be Dogs and Cats Be Cats.
0: Excellent. I think that's a great title.
1: And if there's anyone from our Equine Committee on here, it'll be Equids to Equids. And yeah, we'll just we'll keep growing the species out. Let's let, let's let gerbils be gerbils. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you everyone. Thank you listeners. We will see you in four weeks.
1: Thank you guys, much appreciated. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. What sets PPG apart? We are the only membership organization for professionals who subscribe to the view that aversive methods should not be used or even deemed necessary as part of a strategic training or behavior modification program. As an organization, we stand up for what we and our membership believes in. We promote ongoing advocacy initiatives and back up our positions with the latest scientific research and peer-reviewed studies. As a member of PPG, you have access to more than 30 membership benefits. So what's stopping you? Visit www.pet professionalguild.com and explore the PPG membership.